Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 35 in the book of Hebrews titled, Laying Aside Weights and Sins, Looking to Jesus, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we have made a transition in the book of Hebrews. We finished the Hall of Faith in chapter 11, and now we enter a section of Scripture with a lot of ethical commands, kind of teaching us how to run the Christian race. What kind of preview can you give us for verses 1 through 4? Well, I I like to think of uh, a three-part outline to the book of Hebrews, and we're clearly in the third section now. As you remember, a superior mediator, Jesus Christ, has brought us a superior covenant, the new covenant, resulting in a superior life, the life of faith. So we've turned the corner in Hebrews 11 where we've already seen these wonderful examples of faith. Now the author is going to urge us to live out that life of faith, and he likens it to a distance race. Uh, For us, we could think of a marathon race. And we're called on to run this race with endurance, motivated by the examples of the heroes of faith we've already seen. So we're going to talk about that today. I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, me too. Well, for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to read out loud verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So my first question relates to the first three verses. What's the logical connection between this exhortation in the first couple verses and the preceding passage in chapter 11? Well, Hebrews 11 gave us in, in many uh, examples of the heroes and heroines of the faith what the life of faith looks like, how active it is, how this individual or that individual did this or that by faith. And so he's laid this out, and, and that is in its own context, where at the end of chapter 10, he doesn't want these Hebrew professors of faith in Christ to be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who press on, who you could almost get the picture of crossing the Jordan and going on into valiant battle to conquer the promised land, to move ahead and are saved. And so he's already laid that out. And now for this marvelous Hebrews 11, we have all these examples, these role models, very practical role models of the life of faith. Now he wants his readers, uh, us as hearers, to live it out for ourselves. What do you get in verse 1 with, from the language, uh, this cloud of witnesses, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, instead of saying, you know, since the departed have gone before us and are waiting for us, what do you get out of him saying they're a cloud of witnesses and they're surrounding us? Yeah, I think that's a great image, isn't it? It's powerful and, and it's very provocative. And I think we probably could go too far with it. Um, I think at least this much we can say. With him having brought them up, in the words of the text he's writing, they are filling our minds. You could at least just say the world of Scripture that he is writing, this world it has been now filled with images 
that we have just gone through. So he, he almost acts like his own epistle is, is living and active within the world of the scripture that he's writing within the, the scriptural world, we've got this cloud of witnesses. Uh, that's at least, we can start there, um, that the cloud of witnesses is in our minds and our hearts as we consider them and, and read their histories. Beyond that, there is the sense, we don't deny in any way, that these clouds of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses, are all people who are absent from the body present with the Lord. They are uh, disembodied spirits uh, who are the righteous, the righteous made perfect. Later in this chapter, we'll talk about them. Mount Zion, the heavenly, heavenly Jerusalem, and, and all of these individuals who are in the presence of God. And they are witnesses, and they are surrounding us. So I don't deny that at all, and I actually do assert it. How much they're watching us every moment, thats I'll leave that to all. I can't answer that. I mean, it seems very clearly from the book of Revelation that those who are absent from the body and present with the Lord are very well aware of events that are going on on planet Earth. So uh, I think that's, that's what I'd want to say about the cloud of witnesses. These are individuals that have testified by their life they have witnessed by their life. They are almost like in a court trial. You want to know what the life of faith is? Let me tell you my perspective on the life of faith. They are testifying to the power of Jesus Christ in their lives. So they're witnesses to us of the life of faith. Hmm. So based on this cloud of witnesses that you've just described, whether they're actively watching or just aware, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we don't know, but he uses this as, and then gives an appeal based on this cloud, since we are surrounded by so right. great a cloud of witnesses. What appeal does he give these readers? Well, he urges them to run the race with endurance. He ur- urges them to run the race of, of holiness. Um, that's the central. He's going to give them subordinate commands uh, to enable them to run, but that's the command. And I think if we can put it in just in simple terms, they are to finish their race of salvation. They're finished their salvation. Uh, another way to put it from Philippians is to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They are to keep running this race with endurance. They are to fight the good fight, finish the race, and keep the faith. So why do the authors of Scripture, like uh, you mentioned Paul just now and then then the author of Hebrews, why do they speak of the Christian life as a race? And how is that really helpful for us Mm -hmm. for, you know, persevering in the faith? Yeah, we should imagine and and know that there's not just one or two of these. There's a number of these allusions to the Christian life being a race. Uh, The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Don't you know that in a race all the run is run, but only one gets the prize? Run so as to obtain the prize. So there it is in 1 Corinthians 9. I've already cited 2 Timothy 4 where he says, I fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. Uh, Henceforth there's laid out for me a crown, etc. He's got that image, and he says uh, in 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 the book of Acts, Paul talking about his own ministry as a race. Uh, he considers his life worth nothing to him if only he may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has, Jesus has given him. So it's, it's in there many times. So for me, I think what it is, is this is a long distance run here. He who stands firm to the end will be saved. It's not just those who hear and at once receive the word with joy. You've got a race to run. All right. And so the idea here is we need to persevere. We have to stand firm against the ancient enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have to stand firm and keep believing in Jesus and keep functioning and courageously serving as Christians. And it's like a race, a marathon race. In his exhortation, the author tells him to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I find it interesting that there are these two words. He doesn't just say lay aside every sin. He says lay aside every weight and sin. Mm. Should we try to distinguish between these and understand maybe what's a weight but not sinful, but something we need to cast aside? Sure, why not? And then also maybe talk about the sin as well. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, when you're running a race, you could imagine um, laying aside a weight would be anything that's slowing you down or hindering your running or that makes it difficult for you. So there could be some benign things in life that are actually slowing you down. So these would be amoral pleasures, uh, things that are not wrong in and of themselves, but they are slowing you down. You're not as fruitful because you indulge in them. And so you could well imagine them to be similar to uh, Jesus' statement, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, uh, the gardener, the tender of the vine. And then he says he, he uh, cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. So you could well imagine the pruning being these little shoots that come off that could themselves become fruit-bearing branches in time, but the wise vine dresser cuts them off to enable that branch to focus on that one cluster of grapes and maximize its return. So there, I think it's right, what you said is right, that the laying aside of the weights uh, as over against sins the, the weights would be things that are slowing you down, which if you weren't running a race would be fine for you, but you are running a race. So anything that would hinder your full growth to maturity in Christ and your service to him. Can I ask you a follow-up on yeah, that? Sure. So give me an example of in someone's life of how, you know, an amoral pleasure or just how kind of a weight would then hinder someone's growth, how it would keep them from running the race well. Sure. Well, I think, Joel, we live in the ultimate world of amoral pleasures that any Christians have ever faced in 20 centuries of church history. The Western world, and specifically for our setting, the American scene, it's a land of prosperity. It's a land of ease. It's a land of labor-saving devices. It's a land that just panders to our ease and comfort at every moment. I used to be a mechanical engineer, and I can just tell you, there are comfort engineers all over this country that are thinking about how to make your life more comfortable in every setting, whether a more comfortable seat in your car or more comfortable air conditioning, etc. And these things have the tendency to make us weak. They're not in and of themselves wrong, but they pull us away. I think about our smartphones, other things like that, that are constantly clamoring for our attention and people become addicted to looking at them. And so these things are weights that aren't necessarily in and of themselves sinful, but they could be dividing our attention and causing us difficulty. So that would be some examples of these weights. Whatever would slow us down from holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, we have to evaluate. And I think it's hard. I find it difficult. You probably do too, to evaluate our lifestyle and say, you know, what is it that I enjoy? What is it that I'm doing that actually might be hindering me? Yeah, I think the pruning analogy is really appropriate because it's, it's almost like that. There are things that they, even things that grow, maybe you find an interest in a hobby and it starts out as a small hobby, becomes a bigger and bigger one. And then you're like, man, I need to, I need to pare this one back a little bit. And the bit. problem with it, honestly, is that you could imagine the vine and the branches and we're a branch and there are these suckers, these little shoots that are going off, but they have nerves in them. And so when the, when the vine dresser, the father cuts them off, it hurts. You're like, whoa, yeah, I really was enjoying that. It's sacrifice. And so it, that's why we don't do it. That's why, but if we don't, it's just going to get bigger and bigger. It's going to get a bigger and bigger diameter and draw off more and more of that nourishing sap. And we're going to be less fruitful in the end. Let's talk about the sin. He says weights and sins which cling so closely. So let's talk about how those just really hinder our Christian race and how they can trip us up. He used this word uh, 
cling so closely, other translations use so easily entangles, yeah. like caught in a net almost. Sure. Yeah, these, this is devastating. So here, I think it was right for us to make a division between weights that are slowing us down and sin that's tripping us up. And so whatever causes you to violate your conscience, uh, anything that lines up with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, First John 2, um, anything that causes you to violate a clear command of God. Jesus said, if anything causes you to sin, then you need to cut it off and throw it away. And so this is the mortification uh, of sin that is required. As Romans chapter 8 says, if you uh, live according to the flesh, you will die. That means go to hell in Romans 8. But if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the flesh, you will live. That means live now and live eternally. Uh, for those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. And so the idea then is we must kill the sins that are entangling us. So I like the image you gave there of a net that's around our feet causing us to trip and fall. And he says he wants us to run with endurance, or other translations use perseverance. So how does a Christian run with endurance? I imagine it's different than in the marathon. So I, yeah. when I think of running for endurance, it means I'm going to hold back a bit in my first five to ten miles. I don't think that's what he's saying. What does he mean by running with endurance and perseverance? Well, first and foremost, above everything else, it's, it's continue to believe in Christ. Continue to confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. So in the context here, this is the very thing that the Hebrew uh, professors of faith in Christ were being tempted to give up, to turn their backs on Jesus, to trample him underfoot and say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. So in our context, it would be apostasy. It would be uh, not, not being a Christian anymore, so, you know, turning your back on your profession of faith in Christ. So Jesus, again, he said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So we have to make it to the end. Um, now, in a lesser sense, and serving that overall purpose, is we persevere through many obstacles and difficulties and days, mm -hmm. days that are hard. Days in which we want to give up, in which we feel so guilty because of a sin that we've committed. And the, the way is clear. Just confess it. Go to the cross. Allow the Lord to restore you and forgive you and cleanse you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it grows so wearying to do that when it's a certain habitual area that we keep struggling in. And so the, the devil is constantly ministering discouragement to the Christian saints. And we must fight that off and not grow weary in doing good and not grow weary in this battle that we're fighting and in this race. We have to run with endurance, not give up. And that's what I think it means here. Yeah. And the author says the race is set before us. Mm -hmm. you know, what do you get out of that language? It seems almost similar to me where Paul says, for we are his workmanship, uh, creating Christ Jesus. Yeah for good works which he has prepared beforehand that we should yeah. walk in them? Yeah, there is a course set for us and Jesus told us it is him, he is the course. Jesus said, you know the way to the place where I am going. And they said, we don't know where you're going so how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. So Jesus is the course, he's everything. He's gonna say that we're to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith or the founder and, and, and perfecter of our faith. So Jesus is the course, he's the way. And so, the, you know, it goes beyond, but it includes what would Jesus do, the lifestyle he led, the life of holiness, the perfect fulfillment of the two great commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, all of the things that he lived for and that he enjoined, and then the things he delegated to his apostles, Paul, Peter, James, John, 
uh, all of these New Testament writers that he's to tell us uh, how we should live, the, the new covenant lifestyle. Jesus has set a way for us, and we're not to be innovators here. We're not four-wheeling here, all right? There is a, a course. I'll never forget uh, years ago I, when I was um, in high school, I ran cross-country. And uh, our crosstown rivals, I went to Framingham North High School. Our crosstown rivals were Framingham South High School. And the best runner in the league ran for our rivals. Um, he was an excellent runner named Tony Baugh. I'll never forget this. And <clears throat> he was running in the conference race. So all 10 teams were, were running. So you had 70 runners in this race. And um, he was way out in front. He was, he was just waxing everybody. He was just so far better than everyone. But he made a wrong turn, got off the course. Oh, my gosh. And um, it was clearly marked, but he just missed it. It was, a, it was a turn through the woods, and he went left, and the course went right. And he had to backtrack. He couldn't take a shortcut. He had to go back and ended up finishing 10th. And uh, it was amazing he finished that high um, because he was well up the wrong way and he had to make all of that back and come back and pretty devastated. And I remember seeing him in line, um, you know, as they were giving out the, the awards and he got an award for 10th place, which was an achievement, but he was, he was clearly the best runner in, in the league and he was very angry with himself. And so there is a race, a course marked out for us and we cannot get off the path. So that's what he's saying here. Yeah. So how are we to run this race? We talked about endurance, but then he gives us the, the, the method here, looking to Jesus. What does it mean for the Christian to run their race looking to Jesus? I really believe this is the life of faith. You know, I've, I've taught for, for years now that faith is the eyesight of the soul and by which we see invisible spiritual realities. And here, the invisible spiritual reality that we're looking to is Jesus. We've never seen him, though we have not seen him. Peter says we love him. And so the idea is we set Jesus continually before us. Just like it says in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right side, I will not be shaken. And so for me, the life of faith is continually setting Jesus before me. Jesus who died for my sins. Just start there every day, realize my sins are fully atoned for. That's where you got to start, justification by faith. I am forgiven I am on that basis adopted by the Father. I am in a reconciled relationship. The Father's not angry at me. He's not hostile to me. He's not against me. He loves me. He will never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He is for me. And if God is for me, who could be against me? So we're, we're fixing our eyes, focusing our, the minds of our faith, the eyes of our faith on Jesus on him dead on the cross, fully atoned for our sins, but more than that, him raised to new life, as though we can picture him in that upper room, and we're one of the 12 apostles, we're there with him, and Jesus is showing us his hands and his side, and he's saying, because I live, you will live forever. And we have so much power and energy through Jesus. So we start there, focusing by faith on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Hmm. And what do we get out of this description of him? The author calls him the founder and perfecter of our faith. Well, there's, first of all, let's go to the end and try to understand what our faith means. So it could mean one of two things. It could mean our the eyesight of our souls by which we ourselves believe in Jesus, see the invisible. So our own believing. Or it could be the faith known as Christianity, the orthodox set of doctrines the Bible does use um, the faith, like keep the faith or contend you know, for the faith. Contend indeed. for the faith. That would be Christian doctrine. 
I don't know that we need to pick and choose here. Jesus is both. He is the one that founded our Christian faith, and he is the one who is the founder of our own personal faith in Jesus. So let's take the second, the, the first one we just described, the second one I just mentioned, namely our own faith. Jesus established within us by the Holy Spirit our own faith in Christ. As Ephesians 2 says, for, for by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It doesn't originate from yourself. It is the gift of God. So our own faith was founded by Jesus, established within our souls by Jesus. So he is the beginning of our faith. Um, Also, to the other way of looking at it, Jesus established the Christian doctrine long before we were born, established the gospel, established the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians and all of the doctrines that we consider Christianity, established them. They are written in stone. They are not going anywhere. Jesus is the, is the founder of our faith in both senses. But he's also the perfecter of our faith. And that's, that's pretty exciting. That seems to corroborate what the author said earlier about him being the, the captain of our salvation, I think yeah. in chapter three. And then um, the he who sanctifies and the one who are sanctified, Jesus the one who love sanctifies. It. I think you mentioned that in yeah. chapter three as well. Yeah. So, so I, I love it. The, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And, and so the idea there is um, that Jesus will bring our faith to perfection or completion. Um, everything that we're trusting God for, our personal faith, we will receive through Jesus. Um, he is also the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, we could also bring in that verse from Philippians, he who began a good work and you will carry it on to perfection or completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is everything. And so he, that's, that's when I think of the author and the perfecter of our faith. That's, by the way, the, that's the essence of the marathon race we're running, isn't it? It's the race of salvation by which we are being perfected in the faith. We're being, we're being completed. And so Jesus is the one who will perfect our faith. And the perfection of our faith will be when we don't need it anymore. Think of it that way. When we don't, when we see him face to face, that's going to be awesome. Yeah. yeah. I like how you said, like the perfecter is he's going to bring it to completion. So yeah. he's going to, he's going to make sure you finish that. Praise God. Finish that race and cross the finish line. Praise God. And you think about the context here with these Hebrew professors of faith in Christ, and they've got a battle to fight. They've, they're going through some very, very hard times. And, um, he he knows that they might be persecuted, even the point of shedding their blood. And he's going to mention that in a minute. And and to just know that Jesus, as he says in chapter 13, he will never leave us and never forsake us. He is going to get us through the, the stormy seas to the safe haven of heaven. Amen. Well, we get a further description of Jesus. The author wants us to know. It says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of throne of God. So he gives us a description of his suffering. Talk about him, but he had this joy that was set before him. So why do you you think the author, in the context of this warning letter to the Hebrews, encouraging them to endure, why does he bring up this aspect of Jesus? Oh yeah, it's so encouraging, isn't it? For the joy that was set before him. That joy has got to be heavenly consummation. All of the elect in resurrection bodies, in a resurrected world called the new heaven, new earth, in that glorious resurrected city called the new Jerusalem, that is the finish line. And that is going to be a world of joy and nothing but joy, the joy of discovery, of discovering the glory of God in new and fresh ways every heavenly day, whatever that means. And and we're going to be continually learning 
how wonderful God is. And we are going to be in new, constantly shifting, changing states of joy in heaven. It's just going to be different flavors of joy. And Jesus himself will enjoy our joy. He'll enjoy showing himself to us. He'll just get the biggest kick out of it. He can say that. He'll really delight in teaching us himself and showing us the glories of the Father. that's, That's it. In order to achieve that joy, he had to go through the cross. The cross was the price tag for all of that. And and for that, we can never stop. Even here in this world with tears, thanking him for paying our price. He was willing to endure the cross and all of its shame to get us the joy he had in mind for us, to bring joy out of eternal sorrow, the wailing and gnashing of teeth that we deserved. That's nothing but horror and and sorrow. He instead rescued us out of that to bring us into a world of joy, but he had to pay the price. And he did it all for that joy. He was able to look right at the cross and say, it's worth it to me. And that ends up being a paradigm of how we should suffer our trials on earth. That all of the trials that we go through on earth have a good purpose, a joyful purpose in the end. God means joy for us. And he uses our trials in a lower level, similar to Jesus' trial. We can drink from his cup. He can, he can enable us to go through our sufferings and our trial because there is a joy that comes from that as well. And in the end, we'll look back at all of our trials that we went through on earth and thank God for them and be delighted that we went through them, not regret them at all. We have to see it the way Jesus did for the joy that's set before us. We endure whatever he wills for us to go through. Yeah, that's incredible. It reminds me of the verse in the previous chapter where it says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release mm-hmm. so they might rise again to a better life yeah. or a better resurrection. Yeah. That They must have had this joy set before them and, and it just allowed them to endure great suffering. Yeah, and you say the word endure, that's the very word that the text uses here. We, we don't minimize it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross. Let's not mix categories here. He enjoyed what the cross produced, what it purchased. But he didn't enjoy the cross. There was no joy. Neither did the father. The father did the same thing, I really believe. The father, for the joy that was set before him, poured out his wrath on the son. He had no delight in that. It's just hard to even imagine yeah, what that just look at, be. my God, my God, why have you oh. forsaken me? I mean, and the, the father, agony. Yeah. The agony of Jesus is clear in Gethsemane and then again at the cross. And the agony of the father, I think, is clear too. The earthquake, the, the eerie darkness. I mean... I don't know how God the Father could have said any more clearly how hard that was for him to do. So, I mean, the, the fact is there, were, there was nothing but enduring when it comes to that kind of suffering, that cross. And so I don't think we should ever minimize the lesser sufferings that we or our brothers and sisters go through, even martyrdom, incarceration and torture and martyrdom. These are not light things. They're not minor things. They are to be endured not delighted in, but there is a delight through it all, a delight in what it will produce, how the blood of martyrs is seed for the church, how God actually uses our sufferings to perfect Christ-like character in us, the internal journey, how he actually uses our sufferings to lead unconverted elect people to Christ. And there's a beauty and a majesty in that, but the thing itself still hurts. It still causes great sorrow. Yeah, great pain and great... Shame. He says he endured the cross, despising the shame. And I know you've done some work on this word, despised. What do you think was Christ's attitude towards this shame that he had to experience? It was a light thing compared to what he was gaining. 
I think that's what it is. To despise means to look down on as nothing, uh, to minimize, to think of yourself as higher than it or greater than it. And so he just weighed the two things. You've got on the one hand the cross with all of its shame, and it was a shameful death, shameful. He was stripped and beaten and publicly shamed outside the city gates of Jerusalem. He was the refuse of the nation at that point, and they mocked him and they scorned him. There was a, definitely a shame there, which parenthetically we need to understand we deserved. We deserved to be ashamed. But isn't it wonderful how it says, he who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's amazing. Jesus took our shame for us. But at the same time, he knew it would be shameful. And again, just like I just said a moment ago, it's, it was a weighty thing. But compared to what he was gaining, compared to the glorious resurrection of all the elect, from every tribe, language, people, and nation, wearing robes of white and standing there saying salvation belongs to our God. It was as nothing for him. He was willing to pay that price of public shame. So that's what I think it means here. Endure the cross, thinking very little of the shame comparatively. That idea of a comparing the current suffering versus the future glory, that, that shows up in Paul, both in, in Romans 8, where he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And then also in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And Paul's sufferings were, were not light. They, were and they, they, were they went on for years, but he considered that light and momentary. But they're greater than ours. Yeah. <laughs> Start right there. I mean, let's be honest. You yeah, read the mine list. Mine are and really like, light yeah, and really, really, really momentary. light and momentary. But I think we just, I don't want to minimize the trials that we go through because they're weighty for us. And, and the Lord knows that. I think what he's saying is you need to take the eternal perspective. Yeah. If you're willing to suffer, especially suffering for the external journey, if you're willing to suffer, that unconverted elect people might be brought to faith in Christ. So it could be the difficulty of sharing the gospel with an unconverted boss or coworker who might then turn their back on you and make your work life difficult. Uh, the, the willingness to share the gospel with a lost relative, the willingness to go uh, on mission or to do door-to-door evangelism in your city or to, to go overseas to a difficult, unreached people group. Whatever suffering you go through will be worth it as the unconverted elect uh, stand with you in eternity, celebrating the glory of God. Yeah, it's beautiful. The last thing it says about Jesus here, it says, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Mm-hmm. His exaltation, it seems in the context, it must be a, a, an encouragement to the Hebrews to let them know that there is a great reward at the end of this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He is in the place of greatest honor that any human being could ever bear. He is the Son of Man uh, in Daniel 7, to whom the Ancient of Days, Almighty God there in Daniel 7, has given to him planet Earth, basically. All tribes and languages and peoples and nations will worship and honor him, the Son of Man. So... Philippians 2 puts it this way, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So there is no higher place of honor for any human being ever than the place of honor God the Father has given to Jesus, his only begotten son. And he is fully the son of God, but he's also fully human. So he is the number one human being that's ever lived. And he has the place of ultimate honor. And he also has in the place of exaltation, access to the Father to intercede for us in our weakness, in our time of trials. In verse 3, the author tells them to consider Jesus. They say, consider him 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So he seems to really be honing in on their current situation. Sure. What do you get out of this exhortation? Well, it's, going, it's a different way of looking at let us fix our eyes on Jesus. I think it's the same thing. Uh, I think to consider him is the same as to fix our eyes on Jesus. So the idea is to meditate, to take scripture on Jesus and to meditate on him, to meditate on his person, his works, his position, and to consider him, and specifically here, to consider the opposition he endured every day of his ministry. I mean, once things really started heating heating up, they were plotting his destruction every day, trying to trap him in difficult questions. And so the idea here is opposition. Consider him who endured that kind of opposition from sinful people. So every day they're plotting, they're trying to trap him in his words. The question on divorce was asked in Herod's uh, region so that just like John the Baptist got into trouble on that one, political trouble, Jesus would get into trouble. The question on taxation was asked to get him into trouble. Uh, They're trying to trap him and trip him up in every way that they could. Uh, and so he had that opposition, but it came to full fruition when they plotted his death, which they did multiple times, but then in, in the end achieved it. So consider Jesus, the one who endured such opposition from sinful people. The Spirit of Christ is in you. You have everything you need to not give up in the midst of that kind of opposition. That's what the author is saying here. Meditate on him. Think about him. Yeah, that is a powerful encouragement to endure hostility well, just yeah. seeing what he did and what he endured. And look at what the author says, so that you'll not grow weary or faint-hearted. And I think that's the idea here. It's discouragement. It's where your, your hands, you know, get weak. You don't grab your weapon anymore. You don't take up the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. You just are emaciated and depleted and discouraged, faint-hearted. You know how we have the spiritual armor, which is impenetrable. And how we have the weapons of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, which cannot be broken. Jesus said, Scripture cannot be broken. Satan's lies can be broken. And so sword to sword, we win. So what Satan does is deceives us and dupes us into not putting on the full armor of God and not taking up the weapon in our hand with which we can destroy all of the strongholds of the evil one. We, we just are, are duped and tricked into giving up growing weary and being faint-hearted. Same thing with what uh, Paul says in Galatians, where he says that, uh, you know, if we, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, uh, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in, in the work of the Lord, See, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, so don't give up. Yeah. I have found this phenomenon in my life when I study Christians who suffer. I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, where you, you read about some horrific sufferings, but then you, you see in the account how God met them and how God provided for them. Sometimes yeah. even just gave them grace to die well. Absolutely. Sometimes maybe you know, grace to endure you know, 20 years in a Romanian prison, but then yeah. filled them with faith. Incredible. And it's so much different than reading, like if I read like a, a horrific war account, my gut reaction is I don't ever want to go through something like that. Yeah. But when I read an account of Christian suffering, it's like God works faith in you to let you know that if you suffer, the longer you suffer, you know, the more grace God's going to pour out on your life and you're going to be able to endure yeah. because of the grace of God. It's true. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know for certain what Daniel would say, but if you could ask him at the end of his life, what was the greatest day of your life or night of your life? He'd say the, the time in the lion's den. 
you know, where I was thrown in there and should have been immediately devoured. And instead, I knew right away when God sent his angel, I would be delivered the sweetest night of prayer I've ever had in my life. Um, you know, and there are a lot of times like when the angel came to give him other, other scripture and all that. But I think in the end, this is a consistent testimony. People who go through these times of persecution look back and say it really was in many ways the greatest time of my life. Yeah, I know you've often maybe hypothesized that about Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. Absolutely. That was probably the greatest night of their life, too. Yeah, but again, we don't minimize the sufferings. You think about Adoniram Judson there in the in the Burmese jail and how horrible it was for him to be tormented by those mosquitoes, to be in shackles, to be hanging basically by his feet. Um, and it was horrible, horrible. The last verse in our section today is, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So I know we just said we don't want to minimize anybody's suffering, but how does this verse put their suffering in perspective? Well, they've not been martyrs, or else they wouldn't be reading the epistle. <laughs> okay, they're still alive. So the, the worst thing that could ever happen to you would be to have your life taken from you. Um, you know, uh, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is the greatest thing you have to offer, gift you have. So you've not given that. Um, and I think he's just saying this, he couches it in this language, in your struggle against sin. So let's, let's say that it's at least possible the sin he has in mind here is the sin of apostasy. So in your battle to stay Christian, you know, with all of the weapons that Satan's hurling at you, he's not thrown everything at you yet. You've not resisted to the point of martyrdom. So starting there. We could also say for us, as we battle against the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes, you think about that, none of us have resisted to that point of shedding blood. I'd rather die than sin. And really, isn't that what Jesus was saying in Gethsemane? I'd rather die than sin. You know, And for me, I think that we could get to that level of resolution concerning lust, concerning sin, concerning materialism, greed, uh, complaining even. I am set against sin. Really? Are you? I am. Uh, to what level? Are you willing to shed your blood rather than sin? It's like, well, I, I would like to be. <laughs> I'd like to get to that level. So this, uh, this verse has checked me before from complaining too much. Another thing is uh, that we should imagine that Jesus was the most tempted man that ever lived because he thoroughly exhausted every temptation. He defeated all of them. 100%. So however, you could think of a dimmer switch of a temptation. Satan ramped up every temptation to max and Jesus just killed all of them. Like you can imagine Samson with the jawbone of a donkey kills a thousand Philistines. They're all dead at his feet. Jesus defeated all of the temptations that came at him. They're all dead at his feet. He resisted every single one to maximum amount. In your struggle against sin, you've not reached that level. You need to exhaust every temptation that comes to you. That's the call for us of personal holiness. Wow. That is a high calling. It is. Amen. Do you have any final thoughts or some applications that we can take away? Absolutely. Keep remembering salvation is a process. Uh, this is more evidence here that we're not done being saved. We've got a race to run here. And so the central exhortation here to you is whatever you need to do to finish that race, do it. Lay aside every, every weight. Uh, lay aside all the sin that's entangling your feet. Run this race with endurance. Understand it's an ancient course. The course is Jesus. Focus your mind on him. There's lots of practicalities here for you. Have a good, solid, quiet time every day. Make it a Christ-centered quiet time. Focus on the person of Jesus. 
Remember that he is the lover of your soul, your savior, your commander, as you said, your captain. Ask him what he wants you to do today and then get up and fight. Put on the spiritual armor and fight. Run this race with endurance. Amen. Well, that was episode 35 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 36, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. And the title is, The Lord Disciplines Us as Children. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.